Let's pray together. Father, we gather here in this place today, and we praise your name. Lord, we lift you high because of who you are and because of what you have done. Lord, we see your glory in the things that you have created, and Lord, we pray that we would rightly reflect that glory in our own lives. Lord, there are so many ways that we fall into sin, that we dishonor you, that we commit iniquity, and our hearts are far from you. And Lord, we confess to you today that we are sinners, that we are in desperate need for your, for your help and your aid. And so, Lord, we pray today that you would forgive us. And we know, Lord, that you do forgive us in Christ, as your word has promised. And so, Lord, help us to rest in Christ today, that we would not strive to please you with our own works, that we would not seek to make our own way, but that, Lord, we would humbly come by the way, the truth, and the life. Lord, we pray for those among our church family who are suffering with grief, those who are reeling from tragedy. And, Lord, we pray that you would be their comfort and their help. Lord, we pray for those among us who are traveling. Lord, we pray that you would guard and protect them and bring them back safely to this body. And Lord, as we come to your word together this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would free our hearts and our minds from distractions and worldly entanglements, and that, Lord, we would submit ourselves to what your word demands of us, and that we would trust you fully in these and in all things. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Please turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. And this morning we will be in Exodus 20, verse 14. As we have worked our way through the, the Ten Commandments, which we should rightly understand as the expression of God's moral law that is forever binding upon humanity, we have seen repeatedly that these commandments are all ultimately about God and our relationship and our relation to Him. This is obvious in the first four commandments, or what's known as the first table of the law, which cover who we are to worship, how we are to worship, rightly imaging God in all of our lives, and dedicating the Lord's day to worship and to rest. It's very obvious that those four commandments are about our relation to God. But it's also there in the second table of the law, which are the commandments that are about how we are to relate to one another. Remember, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. 
But in the second table, we see these as ultimately being about our relationship and our relation to the Lord, where we see that the command to honor our parents ultimately is a recognition of God-given authority structures. And the command not to murder, which we looked at last week, being a recognition of God's image within every human being. The reason that murder is wrong is because every human being is made in the image of God. The seventh commandment, which we will address today, is no different. There is a base instruction that flows outward into wide-reaching application that ultimately has to do with humanity's relation to the Lord. And where we saw last week that the sixth commandment is truly, a, is truly the foundation of a biblical anthropology, which is how we understand mankind, today we will see that the seventh commandment is the foundation of a biblical sexual ethic. And yes, I am aware that there are children among us as I am about to preach a commandment that has to do with sexual activity. And I realize that this topic may lead our children to ask questions that we as parents may not be fully prepared to answer. My wife and I had a conversation last night where she said, are you ready for all the questions that your daughter is going to ask you? And I said, sure. And I realized that there might be some uneasiness on the part of parents but if I can offer just a little bit of pushback on that idea, I think we all need to understand and recognize that it is our responsibility to disciple our children according to God's word. And if we don't do that, it is not as though our children are going to just remain neutral. That's not going to happen. There is already indwelling sin in them that has set them at odds with God. Now listen, parents, I'm sure you would immediately agree, yes, my child is a sinner. Grandparents, you somehow forgot that from the time between when you raised your own children and then your children had children. I can't tell you the number of grandparents that easily acknowledge that their children were sinners from birth, but then they say, my grandbabies are perfect little angels. Trust me, they're not. And so they're not neutral in and of themselves, But also, the world is already seeking to disciple your children according to the things of the world. Already. No matter how young they are. And that includes, that includes issues related to sexual ethics. We are seeing, an increasingly, uh, we are seeing increasingly aggressive cultural pushes to include our children in the world's immorality and wickedness with teachers protesting because they can't discuss their love lives with kindergartners. We see Disney including quote-unquote sexually diverse characters in children's movies. We find drag shows being labeled as family-friendly. And we see the entire medical community having been sucked into a perverse version of the emperor's new clothes, which insists that we are whatever gender we feel like and ultimately ends in the celebration of children being mutilated. This world is not neutral. Your children are not neutral. And if we do not disciple them according to the word of the Lord, 
they will, they will veer off into sexual perversion. I have no intentions in this message to be crass or graphic, but if this sermon leads to questions from your children, I would suggest that that is a good thing and that you should take that opportunity to begin laying an age-appropriate foundation for them before the world is able to take that opportunity away from you. Because this issue is extraordinarily important. Otherwise, why else would the Lord include it within the Ten Commandments? Why is it listed among the ten? Ted Turner, who I believe is dead now, famously owned the Atlanta Braves, founded CNN, was also famously known for being unfaithful to his wives. He was married many, many times. He also claimed to be a Christian. And he once said, he once said, well, you know, if you're going to have 10 rules for life, I'm not really sure that I would include don't commit adultery. But the Lord includes it because it is important. It is extraordinarily important. And so with all of that being said, let's look together at Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, where the first thing we will talk about, where we'll see, we'll see a picture of covenant faithfulness. If you got a bulletin when you came in or picked up one of our sermon listening guides, you will see that that is our first of two points this morning, and that's what it is. It's a picture of covenant faithfulness. So let's read Exodus 20, verse 14, and then we'll dive in together. Exodus 20, verse 14 says this, you shall not commit adultery. Just like the commandment we looked at last week, it is even less verbose in the original Hebrew. Last week's command was literally no murder. This week's command is literally no adultery. The Lord was very blunt with this commandment. No adultery. It's almost as if he anticipated questions. Well, what if this? No adultery. And there is a tendency to try to reduce this command down to do not have physical sexual contact with someone while you are married to someone else, as though that is the only true moral issue. Some people say that this commandment only pertains to those who have sex outside of their own marriage. That all other manner of sexual, uh, all other manner of sexual expression is completely fair game. That it's only this particular thing that is forbidden. But the reality at play here is far more significant. When we read through the Old Testament, we find many variations of sexual sin condemned. Whether that's sexual contact between unmarried persons, between those married to another between family members, between those of the same gender, contact with animals, and prostitution. All of those things are spoken of in Scripture as being immoral perversions against God's law. Some of the most heinous sins in the Bible are those that revolve around sex. One of the most famous ones being David and Bathsheba. Obviously, David committed more sins than just adultery, but that's where it began, and it spiraled out from there. One of the most horrific passages in all of the Bible is found in Judges 19, and I'm not going to go there today, but if you go and read it later, if you've never read it before, you, would be, you will be appalled at what takes place in that chapter, and that's among the people of God. 
that do these things. When the Bible speaks about wickedness having to do with illicit, immoral, perverted sexual conduct, it shows it in an especially heinous light. Jesus himself helps us to understand that the narrow view of the seventh commandment is incorrect. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, we find this. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We're going to discuss this text more in just a bit, but for now... I wanted us to recognize that the issue, of sexual, the issue of sexual sin is pervasive and the reach of the seventh commandment is far broader than we are willing to recognize at first. Historically, this is how the church has viewed this commandment with the Baptist Catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Catechism, all teaching that the seventh commandment forbids all unchaste thoughts, words, and actions. So it's not just don't have sexual contact with someone who is not your spouse, but it's all, all impure thoughts, words, and actions. And this is rooted in what marriage and sex within it was created to represent. In Ephesians 5, Paul writes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. That is a quote from Genesis. After God creates Eve and joins Adam and Eve together, he creates marriage. That's from Genesis. And then Paul says this in verse 32 of Ephesians 5. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So all the way back in Genesis, when the Lord created marriage between a man and a woman, the Lord's intention was for that to be a reference, a picture of Christ and his devotion to his church. That is what it was always intended to be. From Genesis, the purpose was to point to the salvation of Christ's church by his death and resurrection. He gave his life for his bride, and he is eternally faithful to her and to her alone. Jesus does not look for another wife. He certainly doesn't approach another wife. He has one bride and one bride only and one bride for eternity and he is perfectly and completely devoted to her forever. Praise the Lord. Because if he were not and it were up to our faithfulness, we would all be doomed. This is the substance of the shadow that we find in the book of Hosea. The Bible uses those analogies of shadow and substance where we see what something kind of looks like until we see it clearly. And in the book of Hosea, we see the shadow of this substance where the prophet of the Lord is instructed to marry a prostitute who is continually unfaithful to him. It's not as though the Lord says, marry a woman who used to be a prostitute, but she's turned her life around and she's going to be faithful to you. No, the Lord says, she's not going to be faithful to you. And he has Hosea name their children things like, not my people. Because their whole relationship is intended to be a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. 
That's what, a God, that's what God essentially says in the book of Hosea. What you see happening to the prophet where his wife, who he loves, who he has redeemed from prostitution. You see, here's the thing. She didn't just say, oh, yes, I'll marry you. He had to literally buy her out of prostitution. It cost him money to do this. It cost him. And he did this repeatedly. And the Lord says, yeah, Hosea is playing me in this dramatic representation. I am the one who is repeatedly rescuing you out of your unfaithfulness to me. That's who you are, Israel. You are the unfaithful prostitute wife. That is the shadow of the substance where Paul says that marriage is a picture of Christ and his church, where Christ is eternally, perfectly devoted to his bride. Our understanding of sexual ethics should reflect this truth, that there is only one right expression of sexual desire and conduct, and all others, all others are immoral perversions in the same way that there is only one God, and there is only one proper way to worship him. So what God has laid out for us to understand is that right sexual ethics is between one man and one woman for life. That's, that's the right biblical understanding of sexual activity. And so when we understand that this is ultimately about our understanding of God, passages like Psalm 51.4 make sense. After David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, and then had Bathsheba's husband murdered because he got her pregnant and didn't want to get caught, after those things took place, David prayed this. Against you, you only, he's speaking to the Lord, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now, obviously, David sinned against other parties. He sinned against Bathsheba. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against people beyond just the Lord. But ultimately, at its root, who did David sin against? Against the Lord and against the Lord only. Because David's failure, in particular as the king of God's people, his failure was especially heinous. Because what did it show to the people of God? That this is the way that the Lord regards us. And it's not. And so when we consider the proper expression of sexual desire and conduct, I would offer that we go all the way back to Genesis when the Lord created marriage. And he says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So what do we see here? Well, first of all, we see the parties involved leaving their families behind and creating a new one. That is not to say that the Lord encourages us or commands us to disregard our extended families, but we have a new primary allegiance. My mother is always my mother. She will always be my mother. But I have a wife now, and she comes before my mother. And my mother is okay with that, as she should be. And so moms and dads, you got to be willing to let them go. A right understanding of biblical sexual ethics means you are not meddling in the business of your children who are married to someone else. That is how we must 
conduct ourselves. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see is a man and his wife. We see two parties who are of different genders joined together. We don't see a man holding fast to his husband. We don't see a woman holding fast to her wife. We don't see a man holding fast to his four wives. We see none of that. We see a man holding fast to one wife. That is how we should understand biblical sexual ethics, as between one man and his wife. End of story. And let me just say, the way that we are created, whether male or female, is fixed by the Lord. No amount of surgeries, no amount of drugs, no amount of hormones, no amount of dress-up, none of those things change what God made you to be. You are a man or you are a woman, and that is fixed until you die. Then what we find is we find that, we find that this man, who has left his father and mother, should hold fast to his wife. When the Bible uses that term, hold fast, the idea is to cling for dear life. Think of it like when you see in the movies someone who is tumbling over the side of a cliff. What do they do? They grab on to the edge of the cliff or they grab on to a root or a branch that's sticking out and they hold on as hard as they can. Or in an action movie where the hero gets pushed out of a helicopter by the bad guy and he's hanging on to the rail as hard as he can. He's not thinking, oh, I could hold this loosely. I can grip it lightly. No, he is holding fast. In the same way, we are instructed to hold fast to our spouse. Marriage is not something to hold loosely. Marriage is something to cling to with all of our might. That means when it's hard, you cling harder. It doesn't mean when it's hard, you go, well, you know, this is more than I bargained for. I didn't really sign up for all this or my all-time favorite, if this is really of God, why is it so hard? I immediately know you haven't read much of the Bible if you think things from the Lord are always easy. No matter how hard it gets, we are to hold fast. Now, listen, I'm going to talk more on this in a minute. There are legitimate biblical causes for divorce, but there are only a few. There are only a few, and we're going to talk about that in just a second. But I wanted to make sure I address that. And then the other thing, the last thing we see, is that we see that this union is one flesh. It's one flesh. Now that is both in a physical sense. Yes, it means literally what it is saying. It is talking about sexual contact between husband and wife. But it also means in a relational sense. You are united together. That is why when Paul gives instructions to husbands and wives in Ephesians 5, he says to wives, you are to submit to your husbands in the same way that the church submits to Christ. And husbands, you are to love your wives as Christ loved the church. He has set up the understanding and the boundaries of our relational unity. To have a Christian biblical sexual ethic means that within your marriage, there is not all of this conflict all the time. 
but there is a right understanding of headship and submission. And listen, hear me clearly. Husbands, you must love your wives as Christ loved the church, whether she submits to you or not. It is not a give and take. Well, if you submit to me better, I'll love you better. No. That is not how this works. And wives, the same goes for you in the opposite direction. You don't submit to your husband because he's always worthy of being submitted to. In fact, he's probably almost never worthy of being submitted to. I'm just being, as a husband, I'm being honest here. I am almost never worthy of being submitted to. I might even remove the almost. But here's what I will say. That doesn't change the Lord's command. That does not change it. If you are a Christian in a marriage, then you are called by God to operate in the way that the Lord has dictated. So wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave his life for her. Far too many times we see these things stretch to their extremes where husbands say, well, I am the head. She must do whatever I tell her at all times, and I'm in charge. And that is not the way Christ loves his bride. Christ loves his bride with gentleness and kindness and compassion and care. And that is how we are to love our wives. We are told in Scripture, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Look, we all joke about how hard women are to understand. And it's real. But guess what? You're supposed to strive for it anyway. You're supposed to study your wife, learn her, and then live with her in an understanding way. So, for example, if your wife is greatly bothered by you leaving the kitchen cabinets open, shut the kitchen cabinets if your wife is bothered by you leaving your socks all over the floor of the bathroom, pick up your socks. Some wives don't care. Some wives add their socks to the pile. Cool, lucky you. <laughs> but you are to live with your wife in an understanding way. Learn what encourages her, learn what discourages her, and do the first one and avoid the second one. But at the same time, husbands... This is another part of our burden. We are called to lead our wives, even when they don't want to be led. So that means if your wife's perspective about something in Scripture is wrong, it's your responsibility to correct it. Now, that doesn't mean like beat her in the head with the Bible and say, listen here, dummy. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying you need to have the courage to risk the fight that it might bring. To say to your wife, you know, I don't think you're right about the Bible on this issue. And wives, guess what? You're called to submit to your husbands in that. Now, if you reach a point where you are in conflict and you're like, I think he's wrong, I think she's wrong, seek out one of our pastors. We will gladly walk through the scriptures with you. That's part of our job. It's part of our function. But ultimately... That's the way that this dynamic works. So when, when the Bible speaks of them being united together as one flesh, it's not just talking about sexual contact. It's talking about the relational dynamic between both parties. And a part of having a biblical sexual ethic is headship and submission. 
what we would refer to as complementarianism, that we are made equal but complementary. We have different gifts and different callings, and that's the way that the Lord has designed it. And that's a good thing. So that's what it means for us to have the proper expression of sexual desire and conduct. See what I mean? It's not just don't have sex with somebody who's not your spouse. Anything that falls short of what we just saw in Genesis 2.24, of a, of a man leaving his father and mother and holding fast to his one singular wife and then being one flesh, anything that falls outside of this statement is a perversion that is outside the bounds of the seventh commandment. So that would include things like rape, even marital rape. Things like homosexuality, transgenderism, polyamorism, open relationships, and sexual contact without commitment. All of those things are forbidden according to God's moral law. And all of those things are literally everywhere in our culture. And listen, I want you to hear me really clearly because this is a point of contention right now. Even the desire for those things is sinful. To desire sin is sin. And that gets us into our next point where we find the need for inward purity. The need for inward purity. So circling back to that passage you read earlier from Matthew 5 that I said we'd come back to. Jesus says this, you have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. So here we find Jesus expanding our understanding of the seventh commandment to include not only our outward actions, but also our inward desires. Jesus doesn't just say, hey, it's what you do on the outside that matters. But what's on the inside matters just as much. And this is important because at the time that Jesus says this, you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees who are really big on not committing outward sins but have nothing to say about inward sins. And in our day, that has become more and more of the norm. Earlier this year, our men went through a book called Knowing Sin. And Knowing Sin repeatedly talks about how the desire for sin is sin. And the men in our group all said, but I've always heard it said that that's not sin, that, that just you know, being tempted isn't sin. Well, there's a difference between temptation and desiring sin. And there's a difference between being tempted in something that has a proper, biblical, righteous outlet and something that does not. It has become the norm to say in the particular case of same-sex attraction that it's only the actions that are sinful. That simply having these desires is not sin. But Jesus shows us here that simply to look at a woman with lustful intent is the same as committing adultery. He says, you've already committed adultery. He doesn't say, oh, don't do that. You're on your way to sin. He says, if you just look at a woman that way, 
you have committed adultery. He doesn't place it in a different classification. He doesn't make it adultery light or adultery junior. He says, you have committed adultery just by looking at a woman with lustful intent. I was a youth pastor for 10 years before I came here. And the question I would always get asked by the boys, well, what is lustful intent? You know what I would always tell them? You know what lustful intent is. Don't pretend like you don't. You do. To look at a woman and say, ooh, that's lustful intent. It's that simple. We don't have to get really complicated and try to dive into the minutia of it. If you look at a woman and think to yourself, oh, man, she's pretty. I'd like to see her with her clothes off. Guess what? You've committed adultery. The end. To desire something that has no outlet for righteous fulfillment is sin. And then to act on that desire is to sin again. That's the idea here. To look at a woman with lustful intent is not something that there is a righteous outlet for. Because the implication is that she is not my wife. And there is no righteous outlet for me looking at her in that way. It doesn't exist. There is only one woman I can look at in that way and have a righteous outlet for those desires, and that is my wife. That's why that desire is sinful, because there's no righteous outlet. And in the case of same-sex attraction, a righteous outlet does not exist. There is no biblical category for gay marriage. That's not a thing. And so this idea of, well, you know, they're in a loving, monogamous relationship. So what? That doesn't make it biblical. That makes it a pretend representation of what marriage truly is. But it's not real. And your monogamy means nothing. If we are inwardly impure, we will eventually also become outwardly impure as well. We, we will. Consider again the story of David and Bathsheba. How does that story begin? Well, we're told that David... At a time when the kings are usually off at war, he was at home, and he was walking on the roof of the palace, and he sees a woman bathing on her rooftop. And he had inward desire. And so what did he do? He outwardly acted on it. He said, hey, go get her. Bring her here. So he has already sinned twice. Then he has sexual contact with her. He has sinned again. And then she gets pregnant and he murders her husband. He has sinned again. He didn't start sinning when he had sexual relations with Bathsheba. He started sinning when he looked at her and said, she's naked and she's pretty. That's when he started sinning. That's when he committed adultery. This is why Jesus gives the example of tearing out eyes and cutting off hands. Now listen, I'm not saying this is how we should conduct ourselves. That if your wayward eye sees a pretty woman at a restaurant, that you need to get a spoon and pop it out. That's not what Jesus is saying either. Jesus is using extreme examples to help us to recognize the incredible seriousness of this issue. We must see sexual sin as the destroyer of life that it is. Because it is. It is a destroyer of life. Unchecked inward impurity will always destroy us and will lead us straight into hell. 
And so we must guard our hearts from even the desire for perversion. We must guard our hearts. Because inward impurity has led to the destruction of more marriages than anything else. It has. And it's not just actual cheating. But it's inward impurity in the sense of, I wonder if the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. Just that thought alone has led to the destruction of many, many marriages, even in the case of it never being outwardly acted upon. And speaking of divorce, I told you I'd talk about this in a little bit. I want to touch on this issue briefly. The Lord's intention for marriage was for it to be permanent. We see that in Genesis 2. That was the Lord's intention, to hold fast to his one wife. However, as I said before, there are genuine biblical reasons for divorce. Unfaithfulness, adultery, is a legitimate biblical reason for divorce. Abandonment or abuse are also legitimate biblical reasons for divorce. And in no case in those legitimate reasons do we find the Lord saying, and you're also free to go ahead and remarry. Now, I think that you are, but I think it's important to recognize that we don't ever find us alongside those statements, so yeah, marry whoever you want, it's okay. The only time we see that is in 1 Corinthians 7, where we see this example of a couple where one of them becomes a believer and the other one isn't, and the non-believer says, I don't want to be married to a Christian. And Paul says, okay, well, if they don't want to be married anymore, you can let them go, and you are free. You are not bound. But other than that, Paul says, you are bound as long as your partner lives because your covenant was before God. Now, I'm saying all of that to say this. If you come to me as your pastor, and there is a problem within your marriage, maybe even one of these things I just talked about, maybe there's unfaithfulness, whatever it may be, I'm going to let you know up front that I am always, always going to advocate for repentance and reconciliation and restoration, if at all possible. I'm always going to do that. Now listen, I don't say that lightly, and I don't say that in a glib way, because I grew up with an abusive father who was unfaithful. And there is no circumstance in which I'm going to tell a woman who is being abused by her husband, you should stay in that abusive marriage. In fact, I'll say, you should sit right here in my office, enjoy a Dr. Pepper. I'm going to have a chat with your husband. But I will say this. If there is genuine repentance, and that means repent, that means bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Repentance is not just, I'm really sorry, I'll never do it again. That is not repentance. Repentance is a pattern of life that shows change, inward change brought about by the Holy Spirit. If there is genuine repentance, my encouragement to you is always going to be, I think you should try to reconcile because of the beauty of the picture of the gospel. But if that is not possible, I'm not going to beat you over the head with it. I'm not going to say to you, no, 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 no. You have to stay with your unfaithful or abusive spouse. You can't leave. The Bible says no. The Bible doesn't say that. But the Bible does tell us 
that God hates divorce. And he does. And it is a byproduct of our sinfulness, not a byproduct of the Lord's perfect plan. Divorce is not an unpardonable sin, but it's also something that we should not take lightly. We are, we are mandated to forgive in all things, and redeeming broken marriages should be our aim. And the divorce rate among Christians is not far from the divorce rate among non-believers. Just because our culture views marriage as disposable does not mean that we should. Marriage is not disposable. It's not something to be cast off lightly. That's a trap. Straight from the pits of hell. And I promise you that if husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church, and if wives submit to their husbands as they do to the Lord, guess what? Divorce is never coming. I promise you. If you function in your marriage according to God's word, divorce is never going to happen. I promise. God's design for sexual activity is often seen as outdated and old-fashioned. But here's the truth. It is the only way that women are protected and that families can thrive. Historian and noted atheist Tom Holland, not Spider-Man, different Tom Holland, in his studies on the ancient world came to the realization that people did not naturally do what was good and moral. Imperfect children were routinely murdered. Slaves were treated as outlets for physical pleasure without their consent. R women were brutalized and treated like property. And he said, much to his own dismay, that it was Christianity that changed the world in a better way. That it was Christianity that demanded that men control themselves, that prohibited all forms of rape, that confined sexuality within monogamy and elevated women to equal status with men. The world tells us today that to submit to a biblical Christian ethic is to demean women. It's to harm women. It's to be bigoted and closed-minded. And yet the history of humanity tells us something different. The history of Christianity tells us something different. That it is only with a biblical sexual ethic that we see women protected and families thriving. And we can see that happening in our culture right now. Children are treated as disposable through abortion, Marriage is a convenience at best, and when you get tired, you move on. I, I, I'm 39 years old. I'm, I mean, I, I feel old, but I'm not that old. People that I went to high school with are on their third or fourth wife. At 38, 39 years old, that is insanity. Because that is what the culture has done. By shifting away from a biblical sexual ethic... The culture has embraced chaos and destruction and pain. <clears throat> Biblical sexual ethics protect those who are weaker and more vulnerable. And, and while that's not the reason that we should submit to them, it is a truth that is inescapable. And here's another truth that is inescapable. All of us have fallen short of being righteous in these things. All of us. There is not a one of us that should still have both eyes and both hands. 
men and women. I know, listen, I know oftentimes this idea of lust and sexual impurity is often seen as a man's sin. Ladies, you ain't fooling me. You're sinners just like us. It's also not just a young person's sin either. You would be astonished to know how many little old ladies say things to me like, oh, I saw that boy cutting my grass and he sure was a pretty boy. I hope he comes back with his shirt off. And look, that's funny, but it's also not. We need to understand that this is not a sin that affects only young men. This is a sin that affects both genders, all ages, because all of us are sinners at our core. All of us are wicked and depraved. All of us. Our flesh desires wickedness. There is no, there is no one righteous. No one seeks God, not even one. And that's not me. That's the Bible. Take it up with the Lord. And some of us have deeply shameful things in our past as it relates to sexual sin, myself included. But the good news for all of us is that Jesus Christ has been perfectly pure on our behalf. Whatever sin you have in your past, whatever sexual sin you have in your past, it doesn't matter. Christ is enough. And you might say to me, well, pastor, you don't understand. I feel trapped. I feel trapped into this homosexual lifestyle. I feel trapped into my pornography addiction. I say to you, as scripture says, that his grace is sufficient for you. And his power is made perfect in weakness. And so do you know how you fight against those, sin, against those sins? You confess your sins to the Lord. You confess your sins one to another. And we pray for each other. Too often, we treat these shameful things as something we have to keep secret. Brothers and sisters, we are family. There should be no secrets among us. There is no, oh, I'm uncomfortable Oh, that, that makes me uneasy. No. We are family who all recognize that apart from the blood of Jesus Christ, we are hopeless sinners. If someone confessing sin to you to ask for prayer makes you even for a moment think, oh, I'm glad I'm not like that sinner. There's another sin for you to confess right there. Because Jesus Christ has been perfectly pure on our behalf, we know that in him we find forgiveness of sins and rest for our souls. And so if you're here this morning and you have not been washed by his blood, I would encourage you to seek me out after our gathering is concluded. I would encourage you to come and talk to me. Because I would love to share with you how you too can be saved, how you too can find hope and forgiveness and rest for your soul in Christ and in Christ alone. And it doesn't matter what you come to me with. It doesn't matter what sins are in your life. I promise you, nothing you say is going to shock me. Because if you knew the depth of the depravity of my heart, you would know that there is nothing you could say that is beyond my own sinfulness. And for those of us who are already in Christ, 
who already know what it is to find forgiveness and hope and rest for our souls, this is the calling upon our lives to strive for inward purity and to keep the marriage bed undefiled. And how do we do that? Well, we do that by recognizing that we are family. We are to treat older men and older women as we would mothers and fathers. We are to treat younger men and younger women as we would brothers and sisters. Because I guarantee you, 99% of us aren't looking at our sisters going, ooh. Or our mothers and going, ooh. And so if we rightly view these people as our family, we are able to strive for inward purity and to keep the marriage bed undefiled. We must reject the broken sexual ethic of the world. We must reject perversion. We must embrace the goodness of God in Christ because Christ is worthy of this and all other things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us to help us to learn what it is to live as you call us to. Father, I pray this morning that as we think about these things and meditate on these things, I pray, Lord, that we would not buckle under the weight of our sin, but that we would cast our cares upon Christ. That we would genuinely know that we are forgiven in him. Lord, I pray that you would help us to reject immorality and impurity and to embrace a biblical sexual ethic in all things. Lord, help our marriages. Help us to love the way you have called us to. To pray for one another in this. That Christ would be glorified in us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.